Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Welcome back to Twins Talk Theater. This week, we have on Christine A. Richardson, who is a costume management and design professional with 30 years of experience. She started her career, I believe, in Portland, which is where she grew up, as a design assistant and stitcher at Portland Center Stage, and then a stitcher and first hand at Portland Opera, and then moved to Minneapolis, St. Paul area. There, she worked as a wardrobe supervisor, costume director, and production coordinator, which I think is a very interesting combination, at Hay City Theater. Uh, was a design assistant, stitcher, and first hand at the costume shop at Minnesota Opera and costume workroom manager at the Guthrie. Um, and then after years, she came back to Portland Opera, this time as the costume director, which is where I met her in 2018 when we did Faust together. I think I got all of those correct. You did all, you've done a lot of stuff, but that welcome. Is correct. That's me. That's awesome. I love it. I love it. We were talking before the podcast about um snow in Minneapolis and to be grateful not to be in snow and back in Portland. So Amen. Amen. always a great thing. <laughs> First question, which was a question before the podcast that you wouldn't answer for me is Christine A. Richardson or Christine Richardson? Do you right. use your middle initial? I do. So, so I actually started out of college uh, in movies and film work in my early 20s in, in Portland. Here in Portland, it was big. Uh, people were coming up from California. You know, it was expensive to film down there. Let's, you know, move up to Portland. So the 90s were huge um, for film work. Uh, the big studios, some of the smaller studios, movies of the week. Remember movies of the week? Remember there was, a, there'd be this movie of the week, NBC movie of the week. Mm-hmm. We did mm-hmm. a lot of movies of the week up here. Um, and I discovered that there were quite a few Christine Richardson's, like accountants, and um, script supervisor, there were other people in the industry that were Christine Richardson's. And so it took a couple of years um, of, you know, being this eager 20 something and wanting to see my IMDB or you want to see on, you know, like where it's listed or um, that I needed to set myself apart from all the other Christine Richardson's. So I, I added my mental initial. And so professionally, like I'm Christine Richardson all the time. I'm, I'm Christine Richardson. But Professionally, especially from a design aspect too, that was just a way of setting myself apart, my name apart. If you're going to Google me, you're going to find me as opposed to all the other, going to have to shuffle through all the other, I'm sure, very talented Christine Richardson's, but I want you to find me. So, yep, I do. Right. And I'm very, I'm very uh, specific about it. Like I'm, I, I make sure in programs, in any kind of credit work, any kind of, I'm, I've, for years now, that's been a, Lots of people having to go back and re-edit things because I've said, and I will use the term, you misspelled my name. Like you, you misspelled my name because you didn't include my middle initial. So, but it was important uh, for me to advocate for myself and represent myself. So it's, it's still, yeah. Anyway. Yep. But it is misspelling your name. Like that's not who you are. Correct. Professionally. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you get people roll their eyes, like really, you're going to make me. Yes. I am. I am. I'm going to ask you <laughs> professional courtesy to spell my name correctly. I've I've gotten really mad at producers when they misspell my name, especially when I'm like, this is like my eighth show with you. If you cannot right? spell my name correctly at this point, what's the point? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty specific. I don't know. I'm just, yeah. I'm always amazed when people get uptight about it. But I'm so happy when people are, you know, on board, like, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So anyway. Well, that's why we asked too, because, you know, we don't want to say something that's not correct, you know, and some people have, well, I have my legal name. I just go by Marino legally. And like when I'm at retail, but in the theater, because I started as Hinnon as my maiden name, I didn't want to give that up and give up all those credits, you know, and so I have like a professional name and a legal name. And so. And that's okay. Yeah. Yeah. I did the same thing. So we learned to ask everyone. Yeah, yeah, we both use Hinnon still. Our email addresses are Hinnon. It's in our titles. It's on business cards. But neither of us legally have that like on credit cards. Yeah. It's your identity. It's, 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 I mean, I could say it's like a persona, but no, it's, it's my identity. It's my professional identity. Yeah. Yay, that's cool. 
So to start out, how did you, how did you get into theater? How did you get into wardrobe, costume design, management specifically? Uh, you know, if you had asked me back then if management was ever going to be a part of my world, I would have said no. So that's that's been one of the bigger surprises in my journey is that management has ended up being something that I really, really enjoy doing. Um, you know, I, like a lot of people, sewed for, you know, as a kid, as a, you know, my mom made things. I was very, mm -hmm. I loved to just make things, whether that was like a, made a, a waterbed once for my sister's Barbie doll using my mom's steel mill. <laughs> but I was just a creative problem solver. I love to, you know, sort of, you know, as a creative problem solver, that was my, my fun was just to make stuff. But, you know, as you get a little older, like sewing, you sew your own clothing. That's part of your identity. You're sort of establishing a little, you're showing people or being able to present to people a little more about who you are, let's say. And so mm -hmm. that's the importance that I, you know, in sewing for myself. I've always loved history. I think history and storytelling is fascinating. Did no theater as a kid. Did no theater. It didn't even, I can remember one show, which we still, my, my, my sisters and I have had this conversation. What was that one show we saw as kids? I don't remember. I don't remember. But we saw one show as kids, but it wasn't until I got into um, college. So I went, um, I wanted to learn the technical side of sewing and designing um, I would say I was not, I did not understand or did not know that theater programs existed. That just was not part of my world, but fashion design, there was a school in Portland. Um, so I live in Vancouver, Washington, which is just across the bridge, um, just across the state, the river from Portland, Oregon. Um, so Portland's just right, you know, it's right here. Uh, decided, well, I'll, I'll head to this school because the other schools in Portland didn't really have a technical design part of it, but this, this private school that no longer exists uh, had a, a fashion design program, which would teach you sort of the technical part behind design, flat patterning, draping, mm. um, some of the basic design concepts, but also art history, um, color history, color theory. Uh, and so I decided to do, I decided to do that. Um, at my second year, after my second year of, um, I'm sorry, after my first year of college, um, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, she is all well today. She is still, still with us. Yes. That's excellent. That's awesome. Yes. Um, but that threw my world into at the time, kind of a little bit of a, I don't know what I'm doing, what, what's, what am I doing and what, where am I going and what should I be doing? So when my second year of college was done, I decided I would take a break and figure out what was, you know, what I needed to be doing. Well, I had sewn for a bunch of people in college um, who were in other programs and a, a woman who worked at a furniture store um, who I connected with called me and said, there's this movie in town and they're wondering if they, if I know somebody who can make some pillows. So it all started with pillows. <laughs> <laughs> Simple got, squares or rectangles. I'm like, yeah, I, I can make some pillows. So I ended up working on this movie. Um, it was a feature film um, that included uh, Ken Wall, um, but also if anybody remembers Ken Wall from um, Wise Guys, I think Wise Guys was the name of the TV show. Remember, this is the 90s. This is the early 90s. Um, but uh, Brad Pitt was in it, which was before um, Thelma and Louise. It was, it was a pre-Thelma and Louise movie for Brad Pitt. Um, but I made some, they, they asked me, oh, well, can you make some, you know, tablecloths? Sure. Can you make some of this? And I made a bunch of things for the art department. And from the people that I met uh, on that set and in that situation, I got in another movie. Next time another movie came in another month later and it was like, let's call her. But this time it was because I connected with some wardrobe people. They connected me with, with them. Um, and that went on for about six years of cultivating that circle. I was a set costumer. So that's, um, you know, continuity working, you know, being the person who deals with continuity on set, um, wardrobe supervisor, did some continuity work, um, and a, as a design assistant as well. So that was kind of my, I started actually in movies before I started in theater. Um, <laughs> but somewhere in the mid to late nineties, I was like, you know, I was traveling out of town. I was doing some great, you know, pieces, projects out of town. And I was kind of tired of, of doing that. I mean, you get paid quite a bit of, you know, you get paid well, um, but it's more of a lifestyle, right? It's like, 
you're not home and you've got to continually find new work, you've got to find new jobs, you've got to find, you know, it's yeah, you're like, you're just always looking for the next job. Always. And, and networking. And I mean, it was great um, education in my twenties, you know, um, to, it was sort of on the job training, you know, constant, but I had skill and I had talent and I had interests and I had um, a work ethic and those opportunities that presented themselves. I feel like I just made the most of them. Um, so then basically at the, somewhere in the mid to late nineties, I was like, I got to find something in Portland. And so that's when I got hooked up with the Portland opera and Portland center stage to stitch for them. Um, fell in love with that. Oh my gosh. Fell in love with Shakespeare, fell in love with just the, you know, visual storytelling of, of what theater and working so closely with, with performers and designers and being able to just, it blew my mind. Um, and I, yeah, I, 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 I stuck with it. I stuck with it. But it's kind of a, you know, I'm very, um, I will say, so I only went to college those two years. And I, I have done some, um, I did some non-matriculated students, um, some classes of non-matriculated student at the University of Portland. Yeah, University of Portland. Um, but I'm a big advocate for skills and experience-based hiring versus curricular um degree I'm, there's a there's a different mm -hmm. word. but instead of uh you know your your pedigree or wherever you you know I think that's all it's all good educate all education is great but because of my experience I'm very very much of the you know if you have a drive and an interest um but don't have the degree I think I've hired a lot of people over my career that have been wonderful have been amazing you know, people or staff members for, for places I've worked or overhire for places that I've worked who were moms, you know, um, stay at home moms. And now they're like, well, I just, I used to sew and, mm -hmm. and then I raised my three kids and, and I, I'm sorry, I don't even know if I should be asking you this. And I'm like, you're a mom. Like, I understand the skill set that it takes to be a mom. Like, yeah, that's hard. Let's talk, let's talk. You're not coming to me without any skills just because you say, well, I haven't, you know, worked in theater in that long. It's like, no, bring it, bring it. Do you have the interest? I can't teach you how to be here on time. I can't teach you to want to be here. Um, but if you bring those two things at an enthusiasm, I can teach you the other things if you're interested and, in, you know, so anyway, I'll get off my soapbox, but yeah, that's how I started theater. <laughs> no, but we, we agree. We both, uh, it was, we, grew up in a highly educated house and um so it was always we were just going to college there was no second right. guessing we were going to college but we learned more about how to do theater by work study and doing it on our own than we ever did sitting in a classroom and we have degrees Cindy has a master's but most of it was on the job training or doing it or something like that because yeah I can read you a book on how to use a screw gun, but until you actually use the screw gun, you're probably not going to be very good at it. Yeah. So yeah, Absolutely. no, I think I can, it's great. As you, as you work at different places or I would work on even different movies, I would realize that everybody had their own way of doing it. Like there was no set way of doing something, whatever it was. Um, and being as flexible as I possibly could and being as, um, uh, uh, having the broadest sense of how something could be done. Let's say just, just being able to see things and not say, Oh, well, I have to have this, this, and this to do it. It was just more of a, okay, great. I've seen so many different ways of doing this. I would come up with my own way that made sense, or I would be able to say, sure, I can do it the way you would like me to. That was easy. I, that just became a norm. And I know, you know, having hired a lot of stitchers, you know, stitchers coming out of different programs would be like, well, this is the way I was taught. And it's like, well, there's just so you know, there's lots of ways, Yeah. but this, but, but this is the best way, right? No. Well, no, you'll, you'll figure that out. Empowering, trying to empower stitchers, young, you know, stitchers or young design assistants to no, 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 don't, you know, you, somebody will say, sure, this is the way it's done. And depending on where you at, they may even reference the program or the theater. This is the way, mm -hmm. but it's not true. And the quicker that you can sort of see that you are going to develop so many more skills, such, such a broad and deep tool chest that you're going to create for yourselves that will completely, you know, change the way that people will see you and hire, will want to hire you more because there isn't one way. Use your, use your own intuition and then develop 
And that's why I think, you know, on the job, the idea of on the job, you are developing, I think it's, it gives you the more the opportunity to develop your own sort of way of doing things, of, of, of having to sort of figure things out, some things on your own. Yeah. I think schools a lot these days are teaching to a book or teaching to an answer instead of teaching people to learn and to think on their own and to problem solve. And that's really going to be detrimental when all these people get in the workforce that they can't think on their own. That's a great way to put it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I have college uh, friends who are professors call it in costumes. Um, and I know it's a struggle for them. I think uh, part of that though, too, is if you have instructors who are working designers, they, they continually work in the industries. They continually evolve their own skill set and involve, you know, knowing what's, what's happening um, as opposed to, you know, instructors who aren't, and I'm not saying don't, don't email me, don't anybody email me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just saying it's just, it's a difference. I can see how, you know, the, the, those programs, what, because I get, I hire them. I hire these stitchers or these design assistants. And so it's just an interesting, when you find out sort of what kind of program they came from, what they learn, what you have to sort of relearn. Um, it's that being able to find out for themselves and figure out for themselves that gets lost. And that's where I think, you know, interest and enthusiasm and, you know, experience, uh, you know, on the job sort of experience comes that it's, Highly valued. Yeah, I agree. I think I've actually hired a few stage managers that didn't have the degree or their school wasn't like, you know, one of those like top stage management schools, but I liked their answers and their enthusiasm a lot more. And I was like, you're obviously a lot more willing to come in and actually more adaptable in a way because you don't have that rigid, like, I have to produce this paperwork in this specific way. Like you'll produce the paperwork you need to produce based on what you need, which is really all that I need to have happen right now. <laughs> right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. The paperwork. I that. I, that's a, I, cause I, because we work so close with stage management and my experience with working with different stage or different theaters in different places, it is always interesting because I'm very much of the, I can tell you from my standpoint, the information that I'll need from paperwork, and it'd be great if I can get that or what I need, but what, however it is that the paperwork needs to be done, that's the way it needs to be done. If, if whatever the stage manager is saying, here's how we're gonna, here's how this needs to go down. There's again, same thing. There's a lot of ways of doing it. There's just a lot of ways of doing it. So yeah. So making it look good. Yeah. So then it, how did you get into design from there you know or did it just kind of like seem like the natural next step yes and no it you know I wouldn't say that it was the natural next, next step because in my field that is what you know the I, I think the general public thinks that everybody wants to be a designer like that that is that's ultimate right isn't that the top of the heap and isn't that the top of the game kind of you know right um so so I was definitely not, I really enjoy, I still do enjoy building things. I, I love um, draping. Flat patterning is, was never really, um, there's math involved in pat, flat patterning. And so, you know, <laughs> and that's nothing that my Excel spreadsheets can necessarily, necessarily help me with. Um, but I know people who are, are amazing at it. Um, so I, it's just not my thing. So draping and creating things, um, that's always was sort of like a hobby in my mind. Like that was sort of, I stitch for a living or I'm a design assistant for a living or even a, a shop manager or a worker manager for a living. But my design thing is kind of a, a hobby, not really a career, you know, like that's my hmm. career. Um, so I think the design, the opportunity to design, you know, came out of, I think I, for me trying to just, you know, when you put yourself out there, when you put when you put a design out there, it's like performers, any performer who has to stand on stage, you're kind of saying, here I am, judge me. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's a, there's a vulnerability about that that can be uncomfortable. And I think the first design project I worked on, um, like big one, because I did some little ones, but then when I got the job at the Guthrie, um, there was an opportunity for me to design a show up in the Dowling studio. and it was kind of one of those, you know, we got to find somebody to do it. It's just this little thing. It's not a big thing. It's a little thing. And 
And, and I had done some design work and so nobody else really wanted to do it. And I said, well, I'll do it. And when I said I would do it, but I really, it was really more of a personal, like you need to have this experience. Like you need to, this mm-hmm. is, as, as a human, as a person, but also as somebody who deals with designers and, and is there to help them bring their designs to fruition, you need to have this as part of your, part of your scope of understanding. So when I did do that first show though, that, that really was the, was the game changer because I really love, and people use the word collaborative, like they use organic or (laughs) (laughs) it's a Hallmark card kind of, you know, but really in the end, it is that part of what we do that I really, really love. It's not proprietary. I, you know, if I've, if there's something that I've designed um, and I'm saying, like advocating for what it needs to be or advocating. It's not that I don't want to be wrong. It's that I believe this is the best thing for the character, for the whole show, for the visual, what it was a cult, like, you know, any of that, but it's that collaborative aspect of it. And if you have the experience of working with some amazing other collaborators, lighting designers, set designers, directors, obviously performers, stage managers, you know, you, when you have that experience of really amazing, uh, you know, an amazing group of people, oh my God, I, I have to do this again. Like, this was amazing. I got to create something. I'm always really hard on myself. I'm always like, well, that really should have, not so much in, you know, uh, like that was wrong. It was more, oh, if I had that to do over again, I would change. I wouldn't do mm. that. This and yeah. That. That's part of yeah. learning. That's part of growing. On the job training. Right back to on, on the job training. <laughs> Oh, that was a full circle concept right there. Full circle concept. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think the design work was more really, I felt um, it was just a fulfillment of something maybe that I didn't know that I needed to have fulfilled. But I was also, let's say at the Guthrie at the time, I was the costume workroom manager. So that's, uh, you know, there's a huge creative part of that, but I'm not really, it's not my design. I am there to advocate for and facilitate my staff's ability to bring the designers designs to fruition, make sure that my staff has, whether it's you know labor or whether it's materials, um, whether it's uh, information from the design assistants or from the designer or from stage management um, it's very analytical. And I love that part. Like, again, what I said at the beginning, if you had told me that management was ever going to be, no, I was just going to be making things and having fun and I don't know, forever and ever. Um, but in the end, I'm I'm the oldest of three sisters, and I think there's there's just something about being the person who can again facilitate and advocate for uh, these other very talented people to do what they need to do to be able to you know produce their work, their art in teams or as an individuals um, that I just that I just love. So the analytical sort of planning, I love my Excel spreadsheets. I love my you know yes. Yes, I come on, please. I don't even. That's a whole new world. That's a whole new. That's people, a whole. Other, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> yeah, people send me an Excel sheet and a Word document, and I'm like, "What is this? What yeah. is this oh, yeah. whole program? Don't right. don't do this." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I love that part of it, but but the design part of it really, again, I think it was something that I did not know that needed to that I you know was going to experience and be like, "Oh my, you know, this is just this amazing thing." Um, but again, it really goes back to the storytelling. I really love storytelling, these amazing stories, these, you know, playwrights. Um, so as, as you said, like I've worked for the Portland opera, I worked for the Minnesota opera, but I, I really consider myself to be more of a theater. I'm a theater person. Like, it's not that I don't like opera. I do love opera. I love the storytelling. I love it, but I've spent most of my career in theater and they're very different and they're very much the Mm -hmm. same. Um, but the design process and the rehearsal process and all that is very different opera to theater. And I think as a designer, I just really love the theater rehearsal process, sort of just the, again, collaboration, just that sort of, you know, being with those same people and bringing the story because bringing the story to the stage with these other people who are committed to it, performing backstage, all of that. Um, Yeah. And then when people like it, when they're really excited about it, you're like, wait, I did that. <laughs> I mean, nobody would be more surprised. I probably, you know, probably come out, uh, came, came off as being really stuck up to somebody, but I'm sure I said, isn't it? Like if somebody said, you know, that first show, like, 
that was really beautiful. I'd be like, oh my God, isn't it? As if it wasn't me, but it was me, but I was surprised too. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) from a design standpoint, I just love the, you know, that aspect of it, the the collaboration, but then it really is fulfilling some kind of, some part of my creativity that I've, I've fulfilled for, you know, since I was five. But you could design something gorgeous and then the shop cannot build that design. Absolutely. You know, so so absolutely. having it actually come to life, I would absolutely agree. Like this more than I expected it ever to be on stage, you know. I think that has a lot to do with it. No, absolutely. That's a huge part of it. That's a huge part of it. How okay, I had two questions. Let me see which one would make more sense first. Um <laughs> well, my question is how because you are full-time as a costume director at Portland Opera, but then you also design shows. I know you've designed, what was it, Traviata at Portland Opera, but then you've designed other shows in the area. How is it to kind of manage those two at the same time? Specifically, let's say, like when you did the Traviata at Portland Opera, but then you were also there managing the whole build of it. Right. Did you kind of feel like you had to switch hats every now and then, or did it just kind of like become one? At some point. Yeah, that just through experience, that has been, that's been a tough lesson, I will say. And not just a, it's not just a skill set, but a lesson because, you know, the first few shows that I designed for the Guthrie, um, because I eventually designed for all three of their stages um, and several shows for Joe Dowling, who was the artistic director. Uh, Joe had asked me to do several shows while I was there. Um, Learning to balance who I was advocating for at the moment, right? Am I advocating mm-hmm. for the designer or mm-hmm. the shop manager, workroom manager who knows the, you know, what what's, you know, what the shop is capable of or what, you know, when designers don't when designers come in, that's not their job to just, you know, figure out like what my staff is capable of doing. They come in with their designs. So right. Um, the, there were first couple of shows that I, I realized afterwards I kicked myself because I thought you should have changed it. You should have changed it. You should have changed the color. You should have sh- asked to have it a little bit shorter. You should have asked, you know, like whatever. But the shop manager in me was like, it's fine. You know, it's fine. Like, you know, they need to move on to other shows. At the Guthrie, we, um, right. at the Guthrie, it was, uh, you, there's basically, it's one staff, one set of, you know, uh, craftspeople, staff members but um you do multiple shows at the same time right you're some people are working on this when it overlaps it's a constant overlap and so I'm always thinking ahead as the workroom manager okay well I really want that team to get started on the petticoats for the next show let's say so at the end of one show I might you know like try to you know I'm managing it but trying to manage my own design but also then advocate artistically and creatively for what I need to see on stage and I we're not even talking like it really it was the lesson we're not because we're not talking about like big mega things that would have like cost us tons of money and I should have just done it it's more really little things but I realized I was I I needed to learn how to to separate the two that I needed to be able to advocate for what I needed design wise and that then I just needed to figure out how that was going to happen so that was complicated. Uh, what I did learn, though, and what I still advocate for today when I do design for the Portland Opera, um, is that I am the I love to design, and that if there's an opportunity for me to design, we will get the most out of the shop, out of each penny, out of each costume, because I know all of it. So if I'm the mm-hmm. one making the design decisions and also how it's all going to be done. I can, I call it Tetrising, right? Like the game Tetris. Yeah, so absolutely. I can Tetris in everything that I need to Tetris in because I have the full scope of the entire thing. And so in the end, um, I, I believe it is a, a, a benefit. I, I can see from experience that it has been a benefit because we really, I'm able to stretch every dollar that we have uh, in ways that if you did not, know all of the things let's say we have in stock or all the fabrics we have in stock or the capabilities specifically of each staff member um that you wouldn't get it would still be a beautiful show i'm sure but i can see how um that multitasking part of it you know being able to put those two together that that really 
that that's a benefit. And I, and I love, I love doing that because it just, it's very fulfilling, but for both for my left side of my brain and the right side of my brain. <laughs> when you said budget, that's what I was thinking of. Cause when I was at Tri-Cities, I was the director of production, but then also stage managing at the same time. And there were, there were things like you said, where like, as a stage manager, I feel like I should push for such and such because this is what a designer wants or what the director wants. And then the director of production side of me would be like, no, we don't have those resources or no, that's too much money or I don't have enough crew. And I often felt like, okay, now I don't know which side to like, which side am I battling? You know, like, I don't know which side to go to bat for it. And it does take some effort. But at the same time, they got the biggest bang out of their buck because then I was able to be like, no, we don't have the funds here. Or I know I have 50 extra dollars and props that I can use because we're not using it and I could put it towards this, you know, and so I could kind of like maneuver it both ways. But it is kind of a challenge to like do multiple jobs at the same time, knowing everything, you know, you know, and like, can you use it to your advantage or is it a disadvantage to know all of those numbers behind you? Yeah. Yeah, I don't, and I don't know that I have, I mean, uh, I don't know what the balance is because each each show is a little bit different, you know, because there's a different director, different set of performers, like every show is a little bit different. So, but but in the end, my ability to be able to, because fiscal responsibility is uh, huge to me. Like it's, I'm not interested. I mean, I've, I've worked with budgets, you know, I've worked with $50 budgets and I've worked with, you know, half a million dollar budgets. So it's it's not a matter of, you know, I just always need more money. I want to be fiscally, because I work in nonprofit arts. I am in support of the nonprofit exactly. arts. This is not about me, you know, wanting, saying that, you know, money, you have to have a lot of money to do something. Um, it'll just be different. You give me $100 and I will do a show. Um, you're probably, you probably aren't going to like it. Like, you're, you're probably going to be like, oh, well, that seems like they're wearing matching t-shirts. How you need it. So money definitely does make a difference, but that's not, that's not the end all be all. It's about, you know, it's not really my choice. It's not me saying I can't do it for less than a certain amount of money. I will absolutely figure out with my Excel spreadsheet, figure out exactly how to do it. Um, but, but the, but the person who's telling me this is how much money or this is what I need to do. I, I just will always say you, you might not like it. And that's not meaning I'm going to do a bad job of it. It's just that, money will take make a difference yeah Yeah. this was a piece pulled from stock i didn't make it from scratch and this fabric isn't as fancy because i can't afford 50 dollars a yard or yeah 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 yeah. well you know we you know in opera because it's in specific to opera right in theater this isn't really what you do um but in opera right you you can rent entire operas the costumes for an entire opera come from place um that does not mean that anything will fit anybody it's, it's oh, so when you send them the measurements it's not gonna fit. Yeah, it's not, that's not how that that's not how that works um you're buying a, a a company is buying the design the aesthetic the you know the provenance of the other productions when they say we're going to use those costumes or the set or do that production um it's up to me then to you know make it look exactly like what it needs to look like but it doesn't mean those costumes are going to look are, are going to fit anybody i might need to remake several principal costumes, you know, search for the fabric to try to match the, you know, search for color, you know, have things custom dyed to match certain things. Um, but the, so sometimes the idea is that, well, we'll rent it because it'll be cheaper. Like if we don't have to build it, the building it is actually more expensive. Just it's come on. It's just more expensive. And I'm, I love the problem solving of it because it's not, it's not necessarily more expensive because when you have an entire show come, if I have to remake a bunch of things and the amount of labor that goes into fixing things, um, and again, even in the end, it might not exactly be what the director is like looking at because they're not new, they're not new costumes. And that's a big stage, it's a big stage and it's far away. Um, but if you know, let's say specifically, like my work at the Portland Opera, if I, I know the chorus, I, I know their bodies, I know exactly who I've, I put lots of costumes on them. So for me, let's say to make a costume pair of pants or, you know, a set of things for somebody uh, of, of their bodies that I already know, it could be cheaper than renting it. And then we have it as an asset in stock that we could rent out again, or I could use again. Um, 
it's that, yeah, that problem solving part of it, that the money part of it. That's a, I, I love the challenge of, you know, fiscal responsibility, but it's, you know, it's kind of, it's a great, I love having that conversation with people just in the sort of, well, you know, does it money take, well, we don't have the money to do it. It's like, well, no, that's not what I'm, let's be creative. Like, let's think out of the box. So that's where I feel like my theater, the, the theater in me comes out. It's like, well, no, 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 you know, opera. No, we can, we can come up with something really interesting. Like then think about this in a different way. Doesn't have, does it have to be that? In theater, you mentioned, uh, well, just how different it is for rehearsal. Do you get to spend, do you feel you like you spend more time and get to know performers more in theater because the rehearsal period's longer and like, Usually you're designing from scratch as opposed to opera, whereas oftentimes, like you said, it, it's a set thing that's coming in. And so you're not necessarily spending that time with performers. Um, yeah, in my historic, in my experience, I definitely theater. I, I've spent a lot more time in theater rehearsals. I love to go because I love to be in rehearsal. I love to see the what they're creating because and I guess this is and maybe this is just my this is my opinion. Um, when I have been, and it really depends for opera to me, it has depended on who's directing it. There's some directors who just don't want extra people in the room, um, which I, I totally get. Um, but also, you know, opera singers come to that first rehearsal knowing the entire, you know, knowing the entire piece. And that's about blocking. It's about, you know, well, you know, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, <laughs> and figure it out. Um, in theater, my experience has been more that there is a, 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 t a collaborative, there's that word again, oh, darn it, collaboration, uh, this collaborative sort of meeting of a director and performers where they are going to, they will evolve how a word or how a, a, a line is given and they'll evolve the blocking in a way that's a much more emotional, visceral, storytelling connected. They, they connect in ways that I don't see opera singers connect. Um, so me being in the in the rehearsal room and being able to watch that, especially as a designer, I you know any any time I can get in there to watch, I will watch. But as a designer, I just love that because I want to feed into that. I want that to be a part of my design choices. I want to be in support of the emotion, the you know the storytelling that they are creating. Um, so when you get to see that happen, you get to watch that happen in real time. Um, there's just, there's, there's nothing like it. And it can be simple, simple choices. And sometimes, you know, designers make choices sometimes um, that is for the performer's benefit. It's, it's, nobody's going to know the difference between something and something, but the performer either like, we'll say, we'll have a, I'll have a conversation with the performer and I'll, I'll suggest something. Can I give, can, can you, would you like to have this in your pocket? Like, would you like to have this little handkerchief in your pocket, not because you're going to use it, but because let's say it was your mom's, like this was, this was because she's speaking of her mom or she speak like there's something that's going on in that scene that I just think, what if you had this thing? Can I give you this thing to help you to sort of what I saw in rehearsal, um, support you in what you were trying to get at emotionally. So what if I gave you something? And I'm not props. I'm not props. I know. <laughs> I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're giving them what? Exactly. <laughs> That's going to get lost. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, exactly. But it's um, that that moment of being able to sort of collaborate with that performer. Um, like that can be that I, you know, that can be just uh, that's sometimes more powerful than, again, nobody would see that. But just mm -hmm. that ability to connect with as me as an artist, them as an artist, we're coming from two different disciplines, but within the same, you know, field. Uh, that's that's amazing. That's just fun. That that's then that's Christine, right? It's not me as a designer. So that's really feeding Christine something that she really loves is that connection. So, but I've done that with props. I know when I did Singing in the Rain, the the guy playing uh, whatever the main lead guy's name is. Lamont. Right, that's no, that's a girl. That's that, you know, the guy who does singing in the rain. Um, yeah. He was very specific about his umbrella because he wanted it to be a black umbrella with a wooden handle, but it had to have the exact right curve on it so he could spin it around his wrist. Right. I went through so many umbrellas because it wasn't big enough. It wasn't small enough. It didn't have a longer cap on the end to spin it on the floor. And 
finally we got like the perfect umbrella for him and he actually asked if he could take it because he's like i'm probably going to do this role again can i have the umbrella i was like i just take it like (laughs) (laughs) it makes you happy i went through so many umbrellas this will help somebody in the future because you already have your own umbrella you know how to do the dance with it great Perfect. <laughs> we're paying it forward. You, you're paying it forward to that next prop person who's going to be like, oh, my God, thank God that guy has got his own umbrella. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and nobody else would have known that we went through so many umbrellas and it was such a specific thing that this actor needed to perform the key song in the show. No, it absolutely. Was. Yeah. When I did um, my last show for the Guthrie before I moved back here uh, was Juno and the Paycock. And that was Joe Dowling's last show at the Guthrie is the artistic director's last show to direct. And it's a, you know, it's a famous, uh, you know, it's a famous play, Irish play. Uh, I went to Dublin and um, to do some research and to meet a couple of the performers that were going to be coming to Minneapolis to do the show. Uh, But I also went to the Abbey uh, costume rental. I met the Abbey costume shop, the people at the Abbey theater, um, and then was able to pull some things. They have a rental, like a lot of places, you know, you can rent their costumes. So I went to their costume rental um, facility and rented a bunch of pieces, um, you know, random pieces, not necessarily for specific people. Uh, there were things that I knew I wanted to build specifically for the for the characters, but I also just loved the idea of being able to bring Irish pieces from Dublin, from the Abbey Theater, where this play had premiered, um, you know, how many years earlier, 80 years earlier, uh, for the performer's sake, right? I I mean, the for their ability to, you know, especially the younger guys that were in the in this piece, like to to boost their, to give them something, you know, wasn't just here's your costume, which is always fun, especially when you're making, I mean, doing costume fittings for me is, is always a lot of fun because you get to see this person put this costume on and see how it affects them and changes them and evolves what yeah. they think and, and, um, and their excitement. Every, you know, most people really love to come in and do their costume fittings, but then to say, so that piece was on the Abbey stage because these, they had all done their history, you know, looked up, the piece that looked up the, you know, the other productions had looked up the, 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 um, I don't know, the weight, the, the, the history that this piece has. Um, so then to bring these pieces over from Dublin, um, and have them wear them in the show, it just brought a whole, it brings a whole new level to the experience, which I love, which is not necessarily about design. I, we had pants at the Guthrie. I, you know, if I need to pull a pair of pants or build a pair of pants, <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't that it was just to have that unique opportunity to have that experience everybody to be able to experience it you know find buttons at a little antique store a little you know Mm -hmm. put the buttons on on one of the principal dress shirts or you know be able to combine all of that for me that's 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 the part of the design process and the design for me as a costume designer um that's the part i always want to get to and i don't care what what show it is uh it's not just all about you know creating a really beautiful script or picking out really pretty fabrics and, you know, creating this beautiful, you know, cultivating and curating this beautiful aesthetic. Um, for me, it's that, it's that emotional, it's that, you know, connection that you make with other artists that, again, just feeds something in me that I, you know, would like, I want to do for the rest of my life. Do you find a similar thing when you're building somebody else's design? Like, do you have those conversations those little conversations with those people or like, what is. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the designer. Not every designer um, speaks that way, let's say, or, or thinks, thinks in those terms, which is totally fine too. I'm still there to advocate and to, to, you know, get to what it is that they want to be, what they want to see, what they want to have us do. Um, it aids me though. It's really is those little conversations that really helps you get into somebody's mind, right? Into a designer's eye, what it is they're seeing, what it is they're thinking. Um, so, and I'm, I'm a people person. I like, I like people. So I'm always really interested in those little conversations. Um, it isn't exactly the same as when I'm doing it, but it's, it is this, it is similar. I'm using the same, I would say design analytical and emotional tools that I, I do when it's me um, when it is another designer. Cause I'm also excited for them 
here's this opportunity for you and I'm I, we can build you some amazing things. What are your priorities? What are, you know, what are, what are things that I need to know? Um, but it's all those little conversations that you're gonna get a better sense of, um, or not. I, I have, I have worked with designers in which I realize. I mean, at the end, I'm, I'm still like, I still don't get, I still don't. <laughs> and I tried, but I'm still not like connected. I'm just I'm still not quite sure, but they're really happy. And you think, okay, great. That's, you know, the staff yeah. is really, you know, the, the staff are really pleased with what they've done. And I'm still like, what just happened? <laughs> that, was, that was that was two months of I don't quite I still don't but you know again great great experience of okay sometimes you just don't and that's fine yeah you can't you can't connect on a deep level with everyone there's plenty of times I'm like I think this is weird but you're happy and they're happy the director is happy so great it's that was my <laughs> job one <laughs> a phrase that a sister that I worked with many years ago uh, she used to say done is good. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I do that a lot. I'm like, it's done. Let's move on to something else. Done is good. Sometimes that's the, that's, that's the best, best, best thing to say. And if you can be done and good and on budget, perfect. Oh, that's <laughs> What are you even talking about? <laughs> yeah, true. Sorry. Yeah. A little, little overstepping there in excitement. <laughs> we also say, isn't that the three things that you can only ever have two out of three of them? So I don't think <laughs> you can only have two. It doesn't work. It doesn't work the other way around. Yeah. If only it did. If only. If only. Um, I don't want to run out of time. On your, in your bio, on when we stalk you, because Stacey talks about stalking people all the time. You have, oh, if you're uh, going to okay. have a webpage and a Facebook, I'm going to look at the pictures and read the bios. Listen, we do it all the time. And costume people do that all the time because we get a name, right? And so we go right. into, you know, Facebook. We go into, you know, Googling, onto YouTube, because we, we don't know what, what they look like. What are their sizes? What's What do they look like now as opposed to their headshot that was You're like I don't I don't want their headshot when we do you know when you do the, the photos with stage management always puts together the photo book the first few times I did it people are pulling headshots and I was like this doesn't look like anybody I was like go to their Facebook page and find the one that probably looks the worst because that's what we're going to be looking at every day I don't want the like filtered airbrushed picture no. I don't they're not that's not going to walk in the door yeah depending on people's Facebook feed right if they don't have their privacy if it's all public right and, and especially if they're singers and it's like no they just want to you can find like I have been like oh here's a picture he took yesterday with his son at the beach like that's, that's him. Today. That's what his hair looks like. Like that's the length of his hair. I need to tell him right now. Don't cut your hair. Like that's <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so, Casey, I'm all for. I'm all for the stocking. It's a professional tool. It it's is absolutely a professional tool. Yeah, it was like, oh yeah, okay. She did this show. She did that show. She lived here. Okay, I at least know how like questions to ask or something. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so speaking of questions on. <laughs> Our stocking, you, you have um cultural arts and heritage commissioner. Yeah. What is that? Well, so, you know, when I lived in Minneapolis, Minneapolis is a, is a huge arts, I mean, it's a, it's a large city, right? So there's a lot of theater work for, you know, several theaters there, including the Guthrie, um, the art scene there, the music, the performing arts there are, you know, very well respected and supported. I feel like, and I think the Guthrie plays a role in this, you know, that they, when they were established back in 63, I believe, I, I feel like they have, um, because of their outreach, because of the communities, um, their connection with the community, Minneapolis and the surrounding Minnesota, state of Minnesota, let's just give the whole state, has cultivated and um, grown, is that the, uh, generations, multi-generations of kids who then become adults, who become taxpayers who have to say, yes, we're going to give this money to the arts or no, we don't, we don't want to fund the arts, um, be advocates for the arts in general. I feel like there are multi-generations that have, have been given this gift of understanding and appreciating mm -hmm. and valuing the arts. Um, I can see that that is part of the reason why Minneapolis, um, it thrives so, so well, um, with again, pre COVID, <laughs> um, but, thrives so well with, you know, the money, whether it's, you know, philanthropic uh, groups or, you know, corporate money, um, individuals. 
not every city has that. Not every, you know, not every place has that kind of advocacy and community engagement and um, uh, a connection. So moving back here to uh, Vancouver, as I said, so I live in Vancouver, Washington, right across from Portland. Um, had my job at the Portland Opera, but I, I'm not moving again. I lived in, I moved from Portland to Baltimore, to Cleveland, and then to Minneapolis. And so now I'm back here in this area and I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm good. I'm not moving again. But my <laughs> house, I'm good. This is, you know, I still want to travel and work some other places, but I'm not going to move again. So in, in sort of realizing that this is my forever creative community, um, but I haven't lived here since 2007, 2008, um, I realized I needed to figure out how I can be an advocate here in the city of Vancouver, the city I grew up in, the city that educated me. Um, and so the, the city of Vancouver um, last year, the year before, not last year, not 2020, the year before. 2019. <laughs> we just ignore 2020. We're cutting yeah, it out. But yeah, especially it's also January, just the beginning of January. So they decided they had they had done this before. They had created this this commission before, but just like you know, other cities have different commissions. They had reestablished a culture, arts, and heritage commission here in Vancouver. Um, they was an application process to the city, um, which the city council members and the, the mayor. Um, interviewed uh, different applicants to be a part of this commission. And I had the honor of being uh, asked to be a part of this, um, this commission. So what we do in, is, you know, advocate for, um, for, the, for the arts here in Vancouver, in this little town, this little town that I grew up in and now live in again, as a, as a forever creative community. Um, I saw this as a way to be a part of the bigger picture because you know, again, as I said about like the multi-generations in Minneapolis, I do, I love working with kids in theater, working with kids or adults really in just learning to, that how creativity, creative problem solving, the way of looking at the world in a creative way, doesn't mean you have to be a painter, like a great painter or a great musician, but embracing creativity and having that as part of your life, how essential that is to the way we perceive each other, the way we advocate for each other. And especially, you know, now with the uh, racial justice uh, uh, movement and, um, and and even with COVID and, you know, money going towards the, you know, the lack of funding for the arts in general, I think that the more people who, the, just the general public who can understand and be more creative even in their own lives or have the, be able to see the value of the arts. I can see it and we value the arts, the three of us. Uh, how do you bring that to the mass? How do you, how do you show people that? How do you present that? In what ways can you um, bring your understanding to, to the, to the larger picture? Cause there are, there are people here, there are arts here, there are, you know, um, companies here that, could use the support, um, and so becoming a becoming a commissioner for the city of Vancouver for culture, arts, and heritage was just a, it was a perfect perfect match. It was a perfect opportunity to also um, meet the other people within the community who are advocates for culture, arts, and heritage. Whether they're um, you know parts of they're on the boards of banks here, or they're art gallery owners or filmmakers, um, it's been a great opportunity to sort of network with them a little bit. Um, but in the end, my goal is to find where my place is here in, in Vancouver, um, where I can be the best, where I can bring my, my work as a professional performing arts person, artist, administrator, all of those things. I'm not just a costumer, right? I don't just make costumes. I work for a mm -hmm. lot of companies and I've, I've got more skills than just those. So, so yeah, so it's it's been a it, you know we're having a meeting in another couple of weeks with COVID. We we did lose funding, some of our funding from the state. We give away grants. We've been able to, um, uh, with the money given to us from the general fund of the city of Vancouver, we were able to um, for the last couple of uh, grant periods then give money towards different um, different organizations here, small and large here in Vancouver, um, for their projects, for their you know for these different things that they were working on, which again enhanced the arts community. Um, so we've lost, we've lost most of the funding. So this meeting that we're going to have in a couple of weeks will be really interesting because we're looking at what a lot of places are looking at is how do we continue this in a, you know, in a post COVID economic 
situation. Yeah, where arts is probably very important for people, but most of us we can't do it. We can't work in it. We can't go see it. We can't. There's TV yeah. and movies, and that's about it, which isn't exactly what the rest of us are needing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, you know, I want to be part of, I want to be part of the conversation here in Vancouver. Um, and so that's, you know, the reason I, you know, joined it was to, to be that. So we'll, we'll see what, we'll see what happens. Yeah. That's best really of awesome. luck. That'd be great. Especially if yeah. more cities, countries, county is not countries. Most other countries are decent at this. Uh, if America could, could figure out how to support the arts better just all around would be yeah. great. Yeah close to the end of the podcast we have one more question to ask you yes. uh, do you have any twin stories oh uh so you you had mentioned that before so um i have not encountered that many twins in my world um but my great-grandmother was an identical twin uh mm. so, so her name was nelly and her twin sister's name was jeanette uh, but but as a nickname or as a shorten, it was Nettie. So it was Nettie and Nellie. Uh, <laughs> they, were born, they were born in 1899 in uh, Iowa, northern Iowa, uh, on a farm, Irish, uh, Irish family. Uh, and people would come from far away to come and see the twins. We've got several pictures, um, you know, they had professionally taken. And, and again, farmers, this, so he... Uh, their father, Michael, was a, a farmer, so they lived on this big farm, and they had some um, some cows, but it was mostly um, grain, corn. Um, so not you know not big on money, but people would come from other parts of Iowa, from southern Minnesota, to come and see Nettie and Nellie, and their her mom their mom would put a big bow. So they have these you know big giant bows, which is you know of the period, but little matching dresses, and people would come from far and wide to see. The guilt twins. Yeah. I always thought, and so I think my weird, mother, her, you know, even my sister, like we all thought like, okay, well, somebody's going to have to, somebody's going to have twins. My cousin's like, who's going to have twins? Nobody's had the twins. Nobody's had twins. Identical is not genetic. <laughs> Fraternal is genetic. Uh, good question. It is. We're identical. It's a freak of nature. Fraternal, the woman produces two eggs and they both get fertilized. Identical, the oh. eggs split. It's only one egg and sperm and they split. And so far, they haven't figured out why that randomly happens. Yeah. Okay. You know, you learn something. Thank you. You learn something from every play. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was, yeah. And so it was rare. Yeah. It was rare then. It was rare. It's rare now. Yeah. It's rare. Yeah. It's identical. Yeah. And they were so cute. Like there's just, you know, again, curly ringlets, like her mom, their mom would curl their hair and again like I and I'm sure I'm guessing at some point maybe there was maybe a little money like you know here's a penny to see the maybe there's a here's a penny to see the twins like <laughs> <laughs> maybe all that they got the new tractor for something I don't know but um yeah. there's some very sweet pictures of them <laughs> it makes me wonder what they thought because Stacey and I always joke about how um that it, not that we're like monkeys in a cage you know but like we were one of the only twins in school and everyone just called us the twins you know like because it's such an unusual thing but nowadays we know more of what it is and you know more twins and we're in highly dense populations you know but back then I wonder what they thought of it and thought of the fact that people are driving you know a hundred miles to come see them because right. yeah well I also wonder what their older sister thought so they had an older sister oh. uh and I always wondered what she thought um because she, she what about me? <laughs> I mean, yeah, right. As the oldest of three sisters, like there was, there's always like the, the okay. Well, why is why don't I get a present? Well, because because it's it's her birthday. It's not your birthday. Okay, well, fine, fine. But if people are coming from other places, like people are coming knocking on your door because they want to see the twins. Like that, like as an older sister, as an older sibling, like what what was going on in her mind? Did she yeah. resent it? Did she think, yeah, I'm proud of it? Like here are my sisters. Because they probably got the newer dresses and mom worried about their hair and gave them the bows and stuff. And she was probably oh. like, screw you guys. That's right. Well, <laughs> she outlived them. They both, they were both in their, uh, like, I think 99, 98, 99 when they passed. But I think she, uh, Elizabeth made it to 103. So oh. she wow. outlived them both. But still, wow. yeah, we got longevity on that side of the family. Oh, yeah. 103. Yeah. Yeah. 
That's awesome. But that's a cool story. I like that. I've not heard anybody Old that's people? like, yeah, yeah, eighteen ninety nine. So that's cool. so cool. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, we do that a lot. Perfect twins ending. Because I can, the thing is, I can also see you, like see you guys at the same time. That was brilliant. We're both putting your heads this at the same time. That's that's Twins. What can I say? It's it's in our nature. It's part of our DNA. Can't help it. Can't help it. Can't help it. No. Well, thank you so much for for joining us and talking about all of this. It's so, like you said, so many people are like, oh, everyone just wants to be a designer. Everyone wants to be a performer. So it's so cool to hear about everything else that goes into it. That's not design. Yeah, it's not. Anybody listening? It's not. I'll repeat. It is not. Yeah, (laughs) we're not. It's great if that's what you want to do. But, my, you know, my dad was a letter carrier for uh, almost 40 years when he retired. He loved his job. Like he didn't need no, you know, and he it was a letter carrier. Like, but he loved his job. Do what you, you know, love to do. And if you love it, it doesn't, it's it's not about the pinnacle of there is no, you know. So yeah, design work is not people, you know, there are some amazing stitchers out there who that no draper designer shop manager could even touch their skills because of how great they are, you know. Yeah. Drapers too, I feel like a really good draper is just an amazing person to watch, I think. Oh, but. It's a skill set. It is. Oh, yeah. yeah. And tailoring, you know, actual tailors, not, you know, people, again, that's one of those words that people use is, oh, I can tailor. It's like, mm, no, I'm not talking about taking up the cuffs on a man's pre-made suit. I'm, I'm saying like tailoring from from like from scratch from a draft from from a draft which is just a bunch of numbers and you have to know how to do these numbers together you know add the numbers with that person's measurements it's a high it's a specific skill uh that unfortunately you know those we're not using that as much because people don't want to spend the money or think that that's you know let's just can't we just buy something or can't we just put something together but that but that is a skill and they are masters at their and they'd be, you know, they'd be horrible designers, some of them. <laughs> Every designer is, you know, I don't sketch. I, I don't draw. I do draw, but it, I hate it. It is the least, it's the part, it's the aspect of design work that I am the least good at. And there are some designers, because I've, I've worked with lots of, and, and some famous designers who draw, incre- like you frame them, the, their, yeah. paint, their, their images, um, but they might not necessarily be really that helpful to a shop. <laughs> You're like, that's yes. really pretty. That's really pretty. But what are what what's all what's all that? What are those lines? <laughs> you know, and they'll explain it. And you're like, okay, well, that's okay. Can you? Okay, fine. You know, or they're <laughs> bad at picking out fabrics, right? They again, beautiful, beautiful sketch, um, which people are drawn to and think they're such a great designer. It's like, well, but there's so much more designing than drawing the picture. You picking the fabrics is a huge part of that. Yeah, it's the right color, but I, you know, you can't tailor a men's suit out of something that's weird and stretchy or lightweight. Mm. It has to be the right fabrics. You know, it has to be the right fabric. So there are so many skills as a designer that not all designers have. So it's not even about just, you know, getting to the, let's say, pinnacle of design. It's like, no, not all designers are, are great designers. They might have certain skills that are better than other, which is, that's just, you know, life in general. But some designers who do beautiful, you know, get hired because of their sketches. And then the shop has to, you know, God bless, deal with. <laughs> Somehow make it happen. The reality of their, their planning skill, you know, what their, what their, their ability Ooh. to communicate, their ability, their ability to, um, uh, you know, be able to get their list of things together that I need to, you know, they need to decide, make decisions or mm. you know, like, again, beautiful photo, beautiful, you know, beautiful picture. That's it. <laughs> I, so. I feel that way about set design. It's like, great, you gave me a very nice picture. And how big is this? And where are the returns? And which way does this door open? <laughs> yeah. The technical part of that, it's it's a huge part of that. Yeah. And I and I've worked some with some amazing designers who have had all of that. So you know it's possible. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, no, you don't we don't no, no, you gotta yeah. And then again, that's where my yeah, as my as the as the shop manager, as a costume director or costume worker manager, then that's my you know part of my job is then to to basically it's not taking one for the team, but each of my staff members don't have to advocate for that information. It's up to me then to be like, okay, so 
here's what I need from you. I need technical sketches for all of these things. I've made you a list. I've, you know, here's all the information. I need you to check all these off. Give me a front, give me a back. I'll be specific, but here's what everybody needs. Cause you're not, you, again, beautiful sketch. Yep. <laughs> I'll put it on my wall. Now, now I want to get <laughs> yeah. back in the costume shop. But I mean, I just want to get back into theater, but I want to get my hands moving. <laughs> but Amen. anyway, thank you so much for joining us. It's been so wonderful to talk to you. Absolutely. I, I, I feel honored to be a part of it. And it was a, a great practice for me to learn how to talk about all this stuff again. <laughs> <laughs> Cindy's not stumbling over her words quite as bad as she was when we took some breaks. So that's good. It's good. Better. It's good. It's good exercise. How do I, how do I speak pretty again? Pretty <laughs> String entire thoughts together in one cohesive thought. Mm, it feels good. It feels good. It's coming back. <laughs> oh, my pleasure. My pleasure. I'll get there. Thank you so much and best of luck with whatever's coming up in Portland. Uh, absolutely. Uh, good things have to be coming up. Yep. They've got to be. Yeah. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstocktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at Twinstock Theater. Tato Music, Dance Macabre, is provided by Kevin McLeod of IncomTech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.